Hi, everyone. It's Allison here. If you read my post about my fireside chat with Colin Everett at Protocol Labs, you know that I went down the crypto rabbit hole in 2017. At the time, though, most innovations were occurring in the infrastructure layer. But over the last year or so, we've seen a burgeoning of the Web3 application layer, primarily for consumer use cases like NFTs. More recently, and more interestingly from my standpoint, we've started to see an emerging B2B application layer. I'm very excited about exploring the question of what do these emerging Web3 B2B applications mean for Web2 SaaS people? I explore that question today with Lindsay Lee, an investor at Bessemer Venture Partners. We discuss three categories of Web3 B2B apps, payroll, analytics, and taxes, and why Web3 offers a unique value proposition in those areas. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and feel free to reach out to me with any feedback. Let's dive in. Lindsay, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I, I've heard so much from the SaaS community about how they're looking to learn more about Web3. Certainly, I'm looking to learn more about Web3 and particularly what it means for SaaS people. You and I had a great conversation earlier about this topic, and I'm just really looking forward to helping you share what you know with other folks who will be very curious. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. To start out, can you tell the audience a little bit about your background and what you're working on now? Yeah, sure. So I'm an early stage investor at Bessemer. Um, I joined the fund a little under three years ago now at this point. Started off in our New York office and just recently moved to San Francisco. And I'm spending all my days, all my time these days in early stage consumer crypto. And so uh, as you can imagine, the bulk of that is gaming with some coverage too of NFTs, DAOs and everything happening in creator land. But actually, a lot of that also overlaps with some of what's happening in the enterprise world with infrastructure that touches the consumer. So that's taxes, payroll, analytics businesses. Um, and we're seeing some really interesting overlap between some of the go-to-market and business models of the Web2 world and applying some of that knowledge for uh, the, the businesses building for crypto native companies. So um, excited to have a deeper discussion on this today and go just dive a little bit deeper into each of these areas. You listed some very interesting areas there where there is a lot of information that I think is relevant for B2B people in SaaS. Tell us more about the B2B use cases for Web3. Yeah, sure. Um, like I said, I'm spending most of my time these days in consumer, but to the extent that it overlaps with enterprise, there are some really interesting kind of primitives that have been unlocked by crypto. And so payroll in particular, right, if you think about streaming payments as an opportunity to revamp the way that we think about subscription, um, the way that we think about the idea that we get paid biweekly for work is kind of this social construct that we've all just adopted to. But especially for hourly workers, if you think about the unlock of potential to get paid for the work that you're doing in real time could potentially become a really interesting talent acquisition hook for large corporations who are struggling to hire in these areas. And so um, we think frequently about the types of behaviors that this new primitive incentivizes and whether or not, A, that's positive for the end user, which in my case, again, is is typically the consumer, but you'll see a lot of businesses go go to market with, with both the consumer and the enterprise in mind at the same time. And then two, um, what are the possibilities of enterprises actually adopting this technology? So on the payroll side, just diving a little bit deeper, why is it that Web3 enables more frequent payments than typical solutions. Do we need Web3 for that? Yeah. So I think 
crypto protocols specifically enable continuous settlement of funds. And so if you think about micropayments or you think about streaming payments as a primitive for getting paid in whatever time frame you want, it circumvents some of the problems that we see with the traditional ACH system, which is, you know, just go look at Twitter and you'll see all the complaints people have about traditional banking. And I think that in and of itself is kind of uniquely enabled by all the uh, advancements in technology with blockchain. Okay, just for lay people. So ACH typically takes days to settle, whereas in a Web3 context, you can have an instantaneous settlement. Is that right? That's right. Really interesting. And so can you describe a little bit more, if I'm a company that's looking to have this kind of continuous payment for my workers, what kind of product enables that? What am I buying there? That's the question that we're all trying to evaluate because I think on one, on the one hand, you have the protocol layer. So Superfluid is a great example of this where they're enabling any type of programmable cash flow. So that includes payroll, but that also includes subscription and other, other mechanisms of thinking about payment. And so the idea is that A, like does value accrue to the protocol or does it accrue to the application layer? That's kind of the age old question. And then B, as you think about the wedge to market, so, you know, a contrary example is like Zebic or Rollfi, for example, which are actually building out the payroll products meant to uh, uh, kind of dislodge Gusto and, and SAP and others. Does the value accrue to the folks who are actually building that wedge? And then the second, you know, the third question kind of becomes, if you actually, if you build that payroll as a first wedge, do you then open the platform as is the ethos of Web3 for other people to build other types of applications of programmable cash flows? And how can you make sure that you still retain some control of the ecosystem while enabling some of these new applications to be built. So we don't we don't know the answer to that question. It's kind of just the we're trying to build a thesis along this space. And, you know, obviously founders, I should caveat, like founders always lead us to the water. We're never ones to kind of pontificate on where the, the world is moving. Um, and and the market will speak as to uh, what it what it wants. Yes. OK, so in these early days, if I'm a company that, you know, is again, like looking to do this sort of like instantaneous settlement, instantaneous payments in a more continuous way. Am I literally subscribing to a product in the way that I would subscribe to a SaaS product? Yeah, there are lots of monetization mechanisms to your point. I think one is very simple, just kind of per employee, per company pricing, right? The way that we think about traditional SaaS pricing. You could also monetize as a percentage of payroll that's flowing through your system. I do think probably those fees will get compressed over time, um, especially as competition heats up. And then the third is monetizing potentially your partner ecosystem, thinking through lead gen opportunities and how you can potentially bring value to them while taking a cut of, you know, actually in the same way that we think about core banking systems and the types of digital banking providers that they um, uh, that they push. It's the same concept of monetizing your partner ecosystem. And so um, there are a bunch of different schemas, I think, to, to think through a lot of these companies, like I mentioned, Zebic. Um, RollFi, Superfluid, um, Diagonal Finance is doing this in in subscriptions. They're all taking a slightly different approach, and um, I think it's yet to be seen, uh, you know, which one of these will will win. But I do think if you're selling into a traditional user base or a, a purely kind of Web two user base that's accustomed to Gusto and others, you can't make the monetization mechanism too complex, or else the sale becomes even more difficult than it already is. Um, to to uh, you know shift their um, their 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 framework around payroll from one of like you know we we talked about static settlement into continuous settlement is 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 a hard enough sell in and of itself and so I think the simpler the better. 
Based on what you've seen, is it mostly other Web3 companies that are using these payroll solutions or have you noticed any Web2 companies using them? Yeah, the whole ecosystem is early. So I think as a result, um, mostly crypto native companies are adopting these technologies. There are a couple of players in the space with grand ambitions of going after a really non-crypto native user base to start. But it's yet to be determined um, whether or not that go to market will work. I have to imagine that Web3 companies would also be likely to be early adopters because I'm assuming in most cases they're paying their team members at least partially with tokens. Is that something that these payroll solutions enable? That's exactly right. So a lot of times it comes from employee demand of wanting to be paid in crypto or I think like going back to the question of is this pays payroll the right wedge? Eventually, you know, you can imagine that these platforms will build into treasury management They'll build into wallets. They'll build into, if need be, retirement accounts for employees that happen, you know, if you can deposit in crypto instead of in fiat. So I think we're just think, kind of thinking through, again, if payroll is the right wedge or and, you know, kind of what the demand from employees looks like. Do you think at some point there will be payroll solutions in the Web2 world that are threatened by Web3 competitors? It's a good question. Maybe, maybe long, long in the future. I don't see that happening in the medium term, just because A, I think, as you know, as an enterprise investor, payroll is a surprisingly and shockingly large space. And somehow there are, you know, a million players and, and each of them commands, you know, pretty impressive market cap. And so I think that this movement is going to be slow. In fact, you know, we have this discussion a lot internally around the adoption of software, period much less um, anything related to crypto for a lot of businesses. And so if we're still in that phase of innovation and of software adoption, um, I think that this is, this is we're talking kind of very long term for what the world could look like. Yeah. You mentioned a few companies that are operating in this space. Can you tell us about some recent announcements about them? It could pertain to fundraising or some other kind of milestone that they reached. Yeah, I think, like I said, this whole ecosystem is really early. And so I think all of them have raised some form of funding at the early stage. There haven't been, you know, I know I mentioned two other categories around analytics and taxes. That's where a lot of growth capital has gone in the last six months. And I think we're still waiting to see what the ecosystem looks like for payroll before some really substantial dollars start flowing in. Makes sense. Okay, so moving to that second category, analytics. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah. So this, we talked about this briefly during our last conversation, but I think the, the most interesting takeaway for me right now that's happening in analytics is that the go-to-market motion is really like split equally between consumer and enterprise. I think, you know, you and I talked about how initially in Web2, the consumerization of enterprise products um, was really influenced kind of linearly. People in enterprises realized that they could have better UX and UI and then demanded that as a result of um, some of the stuff that they were saying. And you, you see that, right, the adoption of the prosumer, you see kind of DevRel becoming its own segment. And as a result, that developers demanding that certain pieces of software be bought by their company versus here in analytics, Nansen.ai, Dune Analytics, and the Thai are kind of the three big ones that come to mind. And those are all, all three of them have raised kind of really large financings recently. So I think, you know, I don't know necessarily what the actionable insight is here, but it is new that they're kind of going to market with both and then probably iterating on the product as a result of feedback and really building the plane as they're flying it. And these are often traditional SaaS businesses. I know this is something that we talked about earlier with business models where it's purely actually charged A, either as a percentage of usage or B, on a per employee type basis. So that's kind of how, what's happening in that space. When you mentioned that there were a number of large fundraisings in this area, 
what kind of numbers are we talking about? For Dune Analytics, they just raised a large round from Kochu. I'm going to have to look up what that actually ended up being. Yeah, so they just raised a, a 69 million Series B at a billion plus valuation. I know Nansen's round ended up being around 750 post. And the Thai, I think, hasn't shared their numbers yet. But yeah, I think the ecosystem's getting really big, really fast. And growth investors are kind of just looking for these explosive growth opportunities to put capital in and continue the growth. Do these companies have meaningful revenue? Some do and some don't. I think for some, the valuations are based on usage and community ethos. And I think it's actually incredibly difficult to build a brand that resonates with the crypto native community that is also easy to use for a layperson who's learning. And Dune is a great example of this, right? You can build your own, um, you can build your own dashboards um, using SQL queries, and you don't necessarily need to know um, kind of you don't need extensive technical skills beyond that. Um, and yet they've built this really just, um, uh, there's a lot of like fervor and love around their product, um, for both crypto and crypto curious, crypto native and crypto curious users. Um, and I think that that balance is actually really hard to strike. And so, um, again, I don't have great visibility into their numbers, um, but I suspect a lot of the, uh, um, excitement by investors around their progress is around that idea and then also um, a lot of substantial usage that they have on on the free chair. Now, this might be an ignorant question. These are applications companies that are building on top of a protocol layer, correct? Like Nansen, for example, is not, none of them are decentralized per se. They're kind of scraping on-chain data to be able to cohesively communicate some sort of narrative or enable you to build your own dashboards around the data that's available. And I think like, again, this is kind of uniquely enabled by crypto because none of this data lives behind a walled garden. And it's more about how can we organize this data in a way that is useful for whatever purpose you're looking for. So would you call these Web2 companies that are building for Web3 use cases? Uh, Don't quote me on that, Allison. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've touched on a nerd. I've noticed there does seem to be sort of this blurry area between Web 2 and Web 3, where obviously it's hot to be Web 3. You could probably command higher valuation multiples, I'm guessing, if you are Web 3. But at the same time, some of these solutions just they sound like SaaS companies that are relating to something happening in the Web 3 ecosystem. I think also we've, you know, the way that we think about is Web3 equivalent to decentralized? If the answer to that is yes, and it's not a Web3 company, if the answer to that is no, which some people, you know, the more if we think about it as an evolution of Web2, and people have differing opinions on this. I think that's why it's such a nebulous term is because nobody has agreed on an exact definition. Um, then then sure, like perhaps this is think you can think of even like OpenSea and, and Coinbase as, as, I mean, there's some consensus that those are Web2 companies um, um, building you know, on a on a new framework around um, uh, uh, Web three enabled applications like NFTs, like you know tokens, et cetera. So, yeah, I suppose you could you could put it that way. I want to help folks and myself understand these categories and how they relate to each other. So, if I'm building an application on top of a decentralized protocol, can I be either decentralized or centralized? Yeah. It's more around like how you organize uh, your code base and how you organize your team. Yes. And so what are the attributes that I have to check off in order to be considered decentralized? That's I might not be the best person for that question, just because for me, I think at the end of the day, especially with everything happening in consumer, and this isn't a, this isn't a hot take, this isn't a, this isn't a contrarian take. It's, it's the idea that like 
most consumers and honestly, most businesses will not care whether or not the business is, is or that the end, the end um, organization is decentralized or not. Um, I think it has more implications on the regulatory side of things um, and how some of these um, um, organizations will be legislated and, and, um, and taxed and things like that. But in turn, like in terms of the actual application, I, I actually don't think that it's a, a big kind of a top of mind criteria. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's a lot more about what's the value proposition. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. What would you say is the value proposition of these, I guess, quote unquote, Web3 analytics companies? We can take Nansen, for example. They started because a lot of consumers or individuals were interested in under having more data around NFT sales. I think they've done a really great job of building and to say it in like a tongue in cheek type way, the Bloomberg for JPEGs. For them, it's it's like, think about the average, if you were a full-time DGen crypto trader, how can I better enable myself to understand where the market is moving and which projects maybe there's some price arbitrage happening? And so I think that's where they started. Enterprises, as you can imagine, may or may not have this type of need with some of the financial institutions also getting into the space. And you're seeing actually like an increasing demand for DeFi from institution from institutional capital. And so the average user persona here would probably be a hedge fund of some kind um, looking for additional data. And perhaps they don't have an in-house team that's large enough or has enough resources to build this platform in-house. I, I can imagine, right, like a DE Shaw would definitely do this on their own. But if there is an easy way to organize um, on-chain data without a developer, meaning I can go in as a non-technical person and organize the charts how I want to see them, I, I think that they're providing kind of real value on that front. So moving to your third category, taxes, what's the value proposition of a company there? The idea is, A, well, crypto regulation around uh, taxes in particular is probably the haziest part of the stack to play in. The first is obviously around the idea that if the IRS decides to crack down on consumer taxes, which it likely will, there are kind of one of two options. You can either sell a tax product direct to consumer, a la Intuit and TurboTax, or you can embed a more enterprise go-to-motion with the exchanges and other, other potential partnerships. Exchanges are kind of the easiest to envision, given most consumers are trading or buying or selling on that platform. And so... Um, that's kind of the the real value. I mean, you already saw Intuit announce a, a partnership with with Coin Tracker, which is one of the big players in the space, um, to offer this to consumers, you know, during tax season. And a lot of these will start off as one offs, meaning Coin Tracker, for example, started off with just every tax season you pay however much to get your taxes done um, automatically. Or and then now, right, they're moving into a subscription system where, uh, in addition to this, you kind of layer on value added services. Again, a very similar theme to what we saw in Web two with Web two financial services businesses, um, where you get portfolio tracking and and other features. And so. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see, A, which go-to-market um, kind of uh, wins this this space, and then B, um, how competition affects the pricing mechanisms of each of these businesses. What are the big fundraisings that have been happening in the taxes space? Cointracker just raised a $100 million round. Taxbit has raised two hundred million million rounds back-to-back. Um, and then there's this long tail of, of businesses across the U.S. and Europe that are either raising or have raised kind of smaller rounds. There's Zen Ledger, Coinly, Blockpit, and, and there's just kind of a whole bunch of these. I think this will be an exercise in 
marketing and partnerships. And then it's also an exercise ultimately in functionality in the product. It feels like in the ecosystem, nobody has really figured out how to cover DeFi taxes. Nobody has really figured out how to do NFT taxes. And so there's a lot of white space and opportunity for people to go after this, this opportunity. Now, all of these fundraisings are entirely happening on the private and private like closed market, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm just an average consumer and I'm looking to participate in one of these fundraisings, I can't go out and buy a token for one of these companies, right? These are more traditional VC-led rounds. That's right. Yeah, that's very interesting, which maybe is another form of centralization actually happening in the Web3 world. Certainly, certainly. Really interesting. You spoke a little bit about the different types of go-to-markets that are happening in sort of quote unquote, well, in Web3 broadly. You said there's consumer go-to-market, there's also enterprise go-to-market sometimes coupled together. You talked a little bit about pricing models. Is it safe to say that all of these companies that you're describing aim to make revenue, not just profit from some coin that they are kind of mining in some way? Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly. I think especially for these enterprise applications, the incentives are aligned for them to be able to provide value to the end user. And I think that the we'll see, you know, we'll see whether or not any of these launch tokens, but it it does feel like it doesn't fit well into the model of of an enterprise go to market. So again, we let founders lead us to the water and, and we could be totally wrong here. But actually, like a lot of them are just now starting to build out the marketing and partnerships and dev for all functions. Um, most of this growth is just organic. And I think as a result, like that's a, it's a good problem to have. And as they're filling demand that's coming in through the door, focusing their efforts around making those customers happy and figuring out how to leverage them into the next however many, you know, X plus N number of customers like that, I think is the main area of focus right now. Do you think that Ultimately, their go-to-market teams will look similar to what we've experienced in SaaS, or will there, there be some kind of evolution? Yeah, I suspect. Like, if we're talking specifically about taxes, I do suspect it'll look something like that. On the consumer side, you know, you're going to need a really interesting distribution hook, um, and and perhaps it's leveraging the enterprise motion as consumers find out about Coin Tracker or you know. Coin Tracker through TurboTax or uh, TaxBit has a partnership where they're embedded with BlockFi. And so maybe a BlockFi user ends up finding additional features or functionality through through that. Um, and then on the other hand, it's about, it's. I, I do think the enterprise go-to-market will look very similar because it's about, you know, it's 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 all the same. It's about like hiring really great sales leadership. It's about creating a DevRel team, you know, for the analytics companies in particular so that they can be your champion internally. It's about it's about putting together a sales playbook. And so all of these things look very, very similar. And I do think there's a lot to learn. And that's that's also why, I, you know, for a multitude of reasons, but predominantly um, why traditional VCs also gravitate towards these spaces, because they know that they can potentially bring some sort of learning or takeaway from the existing portfolio. So like you mentioned DevRel a couple of times. We've become accustomed to developer relations teams being built in dev tools companies in sort of a Web2 SaaS context and similar types of community functions being built in other places in the Web2 world. How is DevRel similar or different to that in Web3? I think you can think of it in in a couple ways. The first is in in the traditional sense of building community, you know, the fundamental consumer or the fundamental user behavior and the way that we interact with one another and interact with the community is pretty consistent over time. But if you think about for a lot of these open source projects, and like if you just use Twilio, Daniela Twilio was one of the first pioneers of, of developer, the idea of developer relations as like a function within a company. 
Um, it's coming from a highly centralized entity that has control ultimately over the open source project, right? For a lot of Web3 communities, the idea is that the community ends up running itself. Um, there is no centralized entity where that that has any sort of um, uh, uh, gatekeep on, on the code or on um, uh, the, whatever the community is building. And so I think that's the kind of the fundamental difference. Um, and the idea is that, you know, for a lot of crypto native founders, the idea is that they will eventually step away from the project. Um, which obviously you don't see at all in, in Web2. So um, those are some of the fundamental differences. And it's unclear kind of, there are definitely pros and cons to both. I, I suspect both will work in the long term and we might even see some some positive benefits as a result. But yeah, it's it's still TBD as to if there's one that's quote unquote better than the other. Lindsay, any last suggestions for folks as they try to get up to speed on Web3? But for better or for worse, I do have to plug, we just launched Bessemer DAO, which is you know trying to unlock the, talent supply in our network of folks who are crypto curious and matching that with the demand for talent across the Web3 ecosystem, um, especially as crypto has enabled us to work on things part time, have day jobs and work on crypto projects at night. We are trying to leverage the Bessemer brand and the Bessemer portfolio to be that kind of curator of, of relationships. And then eventually the goal is, like I said, to have the community run itself and reach one another because you know we have constraints as to how, how many people we can access in this ecosystem. And so we want to really harness the power of that community to, to push the ball forward. So uh, if folks are interested, bvp.com slash crypto, there should be a link to the Discord eventually that goes up there. Um, it should be, be up there now, but if interested to check it out, definitely feel free to do so. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lindsay. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> 